helps. So, after a couple of weeks, I've been working in the garden and out in the yard, and I have really discovered a love of flower gardening, which is surprising to me. You know, so Rachel takes care of all the vegetable gardening, and she's got a beautiful garden. But then I have found that um, I've been watching. Do you guys, any of you guys, seen like um, what's that gardening show? Big dreams, small spaces, or Gardener's World. I'm sorry, it sounds like so old ladyish, but it's like British gardening shows. Monty, I've been like learning a lot about flower gardening, and yeah, Erin knows what I'm talking about. And I've been having so much fun with it. It's been really meditative for me. And I've been thinking about how we learn a lot about God and spirituality from nature. And that Jesus often used stories where he used seeds and dirt and wheat and such as metaphors. And I know I, I mentioned to some of you guys when we were at Ipsy Pride that my developing passion here for gardening was starting to cause me to chew on maybe a sermon series. So that's exactly what we're going to do. Ken and I are starting a new series today called Earth Dirt Gardens, Finding God and the Extraordinary Ordinary. That's Ken. That's all Ken that, you know. <laughs> So this morning I want to start out on focusing on the symbolism of gardens in our faith tradition and then next week I'm going to do a little bit more application and we'll do a little bit more interacting with some of Jesus's teachings. But the garden is one of the most important metaphors in our faith tradition. You know, I once heard somebody compare God to like a great playwright, right? That if you look at our scriptures as a whole and not just the individual books and chapters and verses, that there's actually a remarkable thematic continuity. You know, so just like a great playwright will foreshadow really important themes near the beginning of the work and then touch on those themes throughout and then wrap up by going back and revisiting and tying them together, the Bible does that. It foreshadows these certain themes at the beginning and employs them throughout and then revisits those. All right, so in the beginning, light. And in the beginning, there was a garden. And it was a garden with a river that was flowing out into the world, and there was a tree called life planted in the middle of it. And then at the end of our sacred text, all the way back in Revelation 21 and 22, the Apostle John says, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need a sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And then John goes on to describe the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb out in the middle of the street into the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. All right, so in the end here, we see once again the light, the river flowing into the world, the tree of life is present. These themes from the beginning are winding their way through scripture to the end. And in the beginning, the light and the river and the tree of life are found in the garden. And in the end, they're found in a city. And as we'll see, both represent sacred space. So the book ending of these two themes signifies their importance. It says, pay attention, right? And then it causes us to wonder, so where else does the garden appear in scripture and the river and the tree and the light? And so that kind of clues us in that as we're reading the Bible, that like when those things come up, like, oh, something might be being referenced here, right? I got an amen, Finn. So we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, when God began to create heaven and earth 
And the earth then was welter and waste and darkness over the deep and God's breath hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And it was evening and it was morning, first day. Right, so what we see right there at the beginning is God's spirit hovering in darkness and then out of that darkness suddenly light. And it's the start of this metaphorical week, this week of God pulling the chaos and the darkness and the light and the welter and the waste and pulling them together to make order out of the chaos. And as God makes order out of the chaos, the Hebrew writers tell the story as if God is creating the earth as a temple for God's holy presence to reside. So God's taking the chaos and he's calling it sacred space. And then God gives it functionality. The sacred space function as a temple of the worship of the creator. And then we see the image of nature being described as a temple for God throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Right? The psalmist and the prophet Zechariah, they talk about the ground, like the earth beneath our feet, being like the foundations of this giant earth temple. And then they, the Psalms and Job describe the heavens and the earth being like the pillars in this giant earth temple. And in the ancient imagination, the foundations and the pillars, they held up what they thought of as the floodgates of heaven, right? So the idea was, is that if rain falls down, then there must be water up there. And if it's not raining all the time, then something must be holding that water back. And that something was called the floodgates, And those are like the windows of the earth temple that can open and that can close. And it was through that opening of the floodgates that like, that the flood came down for Noah. It was said that the floodgates of the heavens opened and all the waters fell down. Isaiah says, the floodgates of the heavens are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. And then if the world has foundations and pillars and windows, it often also has a ceiling. And so oftentimes the Old Testament writers, they describe the heavens being stretched out over us like a canopy or like a tent. Isaiah 40 says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. And he stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. And this is interesting also, I have a little off side note, like the first actual physical space that the Hebrew people made as a worship space was a tabernacle, which was like a tent, like a giant tent or like a, a canopy. And it was said that God like camped among us, God tented among us, God tabernacled. And then of course, this earth temple of God also has storehouses. Jeremiah says that when God thunders, the waters and the heavens roar, and he makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth, and he sends lightning with the rain, and he brings out the wind from his storehouses. So these storehouses are where God keeps the lightning and the wind, right? So in the Judeo-Christian view of nature, the world is a temple. And in this sacred earth temple of God Most High, we're told there's a garden. And this is like its inner sanctuary, So later in their history, we were talking about how the Hebrew people fashioned this tabernacle, this sort of tented physical space, right? And um, I think I might have, oh no, there I am. I'm sorry. It's been a few weeks for me. You guys got to give me a little grace here, right? So they were in this big tabernacle in the desert, and that's where they would come to worship the God. And, And in this space, in the tabernacle, there was a place where God's presence was said to reside, and that was called the Holy of Holies. 
right? And God's presence was said to rest in the Holy of Holies in this tent, just as God's presence rested in the Garden of Eden, right? You know, like on the first day, God created the heavens and the earth, right? God created the fish, God created the animals. This day, this day, this day, and on the seventh day, God rested. That doesn't mean that God kicked back, cracked open a beer, and watched the World Cup, which the women's team is rocking, and for our Canadian friends, actually Canada's doing pretty well too. (laughs) I think they've won two out of three. No, that's not what it means. The the temple was ready, and the priests had been installed as humans, and then God's presence came to rest and to reside in the temple. It rested there, just as God's presence later rested in the Holy of Holies. So the story says that God fashioned humans and placed them in this garden. And these humans were created to be priests of the Most High God. Now, priests are just stewards of temples and of sacred spaces. And Genesis says, And the Lord God took the human, set him down in the Garden of Eden to till it and to watch it. And the Hebrew words that are used there for till and watch are later translated as to serve and to guard. And those words are used to to describe the role of the priests in the tabernacle and later in the temple, right? That the priests would serve and guard the temple, right? So the message of the Bible here is that it's the distinct role of the human to work and steward and protect and guard this earth temple of the Most High God, right? That we are to care for creation, and that is the first task given to the human. And so the garden became a symbol of what God's good presence on earth looks like, Right? It's a place where the connections between God and humans and humans and humans and God and nature and nature and humans are good. Right? There's this interdependence and harmony. And this is a picture of God's hope for humanity. And the symbol of the garden, it captures all of this. And then that symbol and that hope is carried forward in the narrative. And then every tabernacle and every temple that we have in the Bible it evokes the Garden of Eden. And then these themes show up in other parts of Scripture as well. I think my earring's hitting the mic. The Song of Solomon is a poem about lovers, and it's ridden with garden imagery, some of it sensual and some of it just beautiful. And it says things like, you're a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are like an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits and henna and nard and nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon and every kind of incense tree. Oh man, that makes me kind of like hungry. With myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You're a garden fountain. You're a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste of its choice fruits. And so here the garden is a body. Or perhaps it's the interior world of the human. And that's a thought that we also see echoed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? And so we see increasingly in Scripture that our bodies are considered gardens and temples as well. And that our bodies are sacred spaces that carry the divine presence. That God rests in us also. And that just as God breathed into the first human, Adam, Adam isn't a proper noun, it's Adam, the human. 
so God's spirit comes to fill us. I was just as, um, I was having a conversation this morning before church with a couple of people, and we were talking about how our bodies are smart, like that we can trust certain like emotions and intuitions in our body because God's spirit dwells inside of our body, and we can learn to distinguish that or to discern that. So our bodies are temples, and then the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, they call their people Israel as a corporate whole, a garden. They say, you'll be like a well-watered garden, right? So the idea is entire people groups, as well as individuals, are temples in which God's spirit can rest and reside. And gardens and temples should produce good things, right? Clean air and nutrition and beauty for the world. But the story of the Garden of Eden, it tells us that things went awry. And instead of producing good things for the world, human choices threw this balance out of whack. And we became disconnected from God and from each other and from ourselves and from nature. And so the quest of being human is the quest to rediscover this metaphorical Eden, right? To find ways of living that restore harmony between God and nature and humans, which is why it's no accident that Jesus was buried and resurrected in a garden, right? And it's no accident that Mary Magdalene, who was the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection, mistook Jesus as the gardener, right? The gospel writers are trying to tell us that they believe Jesus is the key to recovering Eden and that following this path of loving our neighbors as ourselves can restore what was lost, that we get another chance, right? We have a redo, This is what Christians often call new creation. We get another start in a new garden. John 20, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there, and Jesus' body had been there. And one angel was at the head and the other was at the foot, and they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize that it was him. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Right, so the cultivating And the healing of the world comes by following the path of this gardener, seems to be what the gospel writers are telling us. Now, if we go back to that very first garden, to the Garden of Eden, we remember that there were two trees in its center, right? There's the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And so the human priests of the Creator God, they were walking around in this garden, naked, unashamed in this earth temple, vulnerable, but safe in the presence of this good God. And God told them that they could enjoy the fruit of all of the trees in the garden except for one in the center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because it would bring death. And it's significant, I think, that these trees are not called the good tree and the bad tree. It's not the good tree and the evil tree. Isn't that what religion's supposed to be about? Knowing the difference between good and evil, and if you choose the right tree and you stay away from the evil tree, you'll be okay? But no, one tree is called life, and the other is called the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis seems to be saying that religion isn't about knowing good and evil. In fact, taking up that task might even be bad for us, deadly even. But no, this religion is about knowing God. 
about knowing a God who is called love and knowing the very creator of life. So eat from the tree of life, not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, the difference between various religious traditions on moral questions is pretty negligible, right? The best of most faith traditions, I say the best of the most of them, tell us don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, don't murder, be generous, care for the poor, live a life of peace as best that you're able. But there are significant differences about how to be connected to the divine and how to live out such a life. And I think perhaps Genesis is saying something to us in that space, right? So the two trees in the garden, they offer us humans two different paths. The tree of life leads, leads to life, while the tree of the knowledge of good and evil leads to death. Well, what would be the appeal of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, we humans, we can convince ourselves that our minds are as good and as intelligent as God's, as discerning. We can tell other people how to make moral choices for how to navigate their lives. And that sounds so appealing and so spiritual. And yet over and over and over, Jesus invites us not to judge others. He says, don't take up that task because Jesus alone is the judge. There's a parable that he tells about the wheat and the tares. He says, it's not your job to tear them both. Like, let them both grow up because you're not able to do it. Only God is qualified to judge because God knows our hearts and God knows our whole story, our hurts and our joys and our strengths and our weaknesses and our traumas and our deepest desires. And then in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the tree of life in Genesis is interpreted as a foreshadowing of the cross. Right? So in our tradition, if we want to find life, we go to the tree that brought us life. We go to the cross, we go to Jesus. Right? And so I don't see my job as a pastor or teacher to like dictate life rules for people, but to help point us to and connect us with a living and loving God who can guide us, right? to help navigate us toward this tree that gives us life. And those bring about different questions, right? It's like, what does God say to you in this season and in this space? And what's, what's wise in your situation? And what's wise in the context of your story and of your community? And where's the work, where's the spirit of love at work in your life? And how can you join in with that work? And yeah, there are weeds in your garden, just as there are lots of weeds in mine. But I trust the gardener with the task of pulling out those weeds. And Jesus himself said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John 1 says, in him Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all humankind, and he was in the world, and although the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. And he came to that which was his own, but, he didn't, but his own didn't receive him, and yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling. That word is, he made his tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. God's presence rested among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. Right, so John tells us that if we receive God, like we might receive the fruit of a tree, that he gives us the right to become children, right? So the life-receiving mode is the mode of children, right? That sound familiar? Jesus says, unless you become like little children, 
you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Mark 10, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, and the disciples rebuked him. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. And I think we've tamed this story and we've made it sort of our, isn't Jesus nice to children verse? And it is that, of course, Jesus is nice to children. But I think it's hardly that. He says, truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it, right? So the whole shooting match is at stake here, right? If we don't get this, I think we don't really understand what Jesus was up to. It's the little child sort that Jesus could take in his arms, babies and small toddlers. And I think Luke says that they brought infants to him as well. And here's the thing, that children are nothing if not vulnerable and dependent and weak. And so to eat from the tree of life is to help embrace our vulnerability and our dependence and our weakness as God-given, as if we are naked children who don't even know the difference between right and wrong. And anybody who has had kids or babysat kids or has nieces and nephews, you know kids are like little anarchists, right? (laughs) I mean, in the most adorable ways. (laughs) And I think Jesus holding small children in his arms is as much a part of this message as his words. He's enacting the kind of relationship that we can have with God if we follow this path. And in the garden, Adam and Eve were like little children. And they were walking around naked and they didn't know right from wrong like little children don't. But what they had was a conversational relationship with God. And they would talk with God and God would talk back. And God walked in the garden among them. And they were vulnerable to danger, but God was there to guide them and to protect them like a parent guides and protects their young. And there was danger in the garden in the form of a tree that they were warned not to eat from lest they die. And so biblical religion, I think, as Jesus interprets it, is about being in this childlike relationship with God, in which God is the parent who cares for us, and we're the children who learn to trust. And our job isn't to know the difference between good and evil so that we can turn around and be judges like God. Our job is to trust God and then to love others the way we ourselves would like to be loved. Now, I could kind of imagine a person maybe having this response, because I have a little bit internally of like, gosh, childhood is something to grow out of, not into, right? And I can kind of feel this like as a female, like a woman, I think a minority person could easily say, so is this just like another attempt by some, you know, church power structure to keep me in my place and to like infantilize me and to tell me to be like a child? You know, I'm like, I'm, like, I'm not a child, I'm a grown woman. And I think Jesus' audience might have had that same response. You know, they were on the wrong side of the power equation themselves in a major way. They were Jewish people in Roman-occupied territory. And I think the aim of the Jesus path wasn't to strip them of their power, but actually to give them more, right? And the, the power structures of the world are coming to an end. And Jesus is giving people the power that overcomes the world, not that bends to it. Spiritual power does not operate the same way that worldly power operates. Our power isn't in might, it's not in being right, it's not in knowing right from wrong and dispensing our knowledge. Our power is being connected with and guided by the spirit of love in Jesus, and that is a power that overcomes. And so childlike faith describes our relationship to God, right? And in relation to God, there's still room to grow, right? There's still room to mature, and we should, 
But just like a kid, we can, we can learn to tie our shoes. We can even fly to the moon and still be like little children in relation to God. And that's where the life is. That's where the path of life, it involves embracing and not running from this vulnerability. And if you guys have been reading that researcher Brene Brown's work, she tells us that vulnerability is the birthplace of joy and creativity and belonging and love. Right, so we go out and we connect with the spirit of love and we pursue life and we become vulnerable with God, learning to trust God's voice, just like a child knows their parent's voice. And we recognize that our human drive to judge other people is a big problem and that we leave that judging up to the one who is able to judge. Right, so we eat from the tree of life, we eat not from the tree of good and evil, and then we can experience all that God has for us as priests carrying the divine presence out into this glorious temple that we call earth. Right, the whole world is a garden in the Christian imagination, and it's filled with the divine spirit of love, and we follow the path of Jesus, the path of sacrificial love, to tend and to cultivate this garden. And in doing so, we restore the connections with ourselves and with each other and with God and with the world. So that one's a little thicker than next week. I think I'll get a little more personal next week about what I'm learning as a gardener. And man, there's just, there's so much there. But at the end of each year, we, we like to take a little time for meditation. So if you're newer to the congregation, we sometimes take two or three minutes of silence. Babies and people make noise. I'm not worried about a little noise. But general silence. And I think I'll do a little bit of a guided meditation if you're open for it. So make yourselves comfortable. Feel free to close your eyes if you want or not. Take a couple of good deep breaths. Imagine as you do that the spirit of love, the breath of God is in the air all around us. And so we're breathing in. That spirit is filling us up as priests of this presence. As you hear, picture yourself in a garden. And that garden can be anywhere. But notice the things in the garden. The sights and the sounds. Notice the smells. Notice the wind. And let's just sit in that for about a minute. If you're not already, picture yourself walking in this garden. And as you walk, a gardener comes up and starts walking alongside you. And you can picture this gardener as you like, Jesus, or if, if you come from another faith tradition, you could, the spirit of love, however it is that you imagine that.
And if you want, you can have a conversational relationship with the gardener and maybe ask if there are places in your life where you've been eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that it hasn't been helping your relationships. And if maybe the gardener has anything to say about how you can, how you can find more life. And let's just give that another minute or so. Jesus, we thank you for being our guide in life. I know many of us here have maybe felt wounded in communities of faith or maybe even just feeling a little bit frustrated or angry with you, God. And I would just ask that as we seek you and as we, as we make ourselves vulnerable to you, that you would show yourself faithful and trustworthy to us in our everyday life. And Jesus, I just ask that you would open our eyes as we go through this week, that we would notice the world around us and that we would take it in and appreciate its, its beauty as sacred space and that you would help us to fulfill our potential as, as those who serve and who guard and who protect and watch and till this earth. And that you would help us to be part of, of creating the dream of Eden Lord, restoring relationships with those around us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, we got